History Courses presents From Settlement to Superpower, The Spanish Century. Episode 2 Isles of Fortune. Hello, everybody, and welcome back. I'm Abraham Ash, and this is From Settlement to Superpower. In the last episode, we introduced some of the considerations that led to the birth of the Age of Exploration, namely the desire to open a direct sea route to India, and, somewhat less ambitiously, the desire to discover the source of the Trans-Saharan gold trade. Now, these voyages of exploration were all undertaken during the late medieval period. In this episode, we're going to be mainly discussing various voyages of exploration that took place between 1291 and 1402, and which charted the coast of northwestern Africa. However, these late medieval voyages were not the first voyages down the Atlantic coast of Africa. In antiquity, many such voyages had taken place. We already talked last episode about Herodotus' account of the Carthaginian gold trade with sub-Saharan Africa, an account which is lent significant credence by its accurate description of the silent trading method practiced by the Wangarans. As a matter of fact, Herodotus tells us even more. He also tells us how the Egyptian pharaoh Nico II sent an expedition of Phoenician mariners out from the Mediterranean coast of Egypt, and that this expedition returned by way of the Red Sea three years later, having stopped yearly along the African coast to plant food for the next year. Herodotus himself dismissed the account as idle boasting, on account of the fantastic claim made therein that on their way around the coast, the sun stood to their north rather than to their south, as occurs in the northern hemisphere. Of course, we know now that this is in fact the case for those in the southern hemisphere, and so we no longer have any positive reason to disbelieve this account. On the contrary, the sailors' report of the sun standing to their north which Herodotus and the other ancient geographers saw as the main reason to doubt this account, actually ends up being the main reason for believing this account. But that said, we need to remember that this is Herodotus we're talking about here, so we definitely still do need to take the story of the Pharaoh's mariners with a grain of salt. Herodotus also tells us another story about a Persian nobleman named Cetaspes, a cousin of Xerxes. This Cetaspes had violated the virgin daughter of another Persian nobleman, and as punishment, Xerxes sentenced him to impalement. But Cetaspes' mother, Xerxes' aunt, begged the king for her son's life, promising that to expiate his crime, Cetaspes would sail clear around Africa or perish in the attempt. The story goes that Cetaspes set out with an Egyptian crew and sailed beyond the Pillars of Hercules and turned southward, where he encountered several settlements of pygmies. Cetaspes continued onward for many months, but finding the journey nearly endless, he turned around and went back to Xerxes, 
telling him that he had done his absolute best, but his ships were no longer able to sail through the strong current. Xerxes was displeased with this excuse, and the unfortunate Satasbes ended up getting impaled after all. Herodotus adds a curious postscript to this story, which was that one of Satasbes' eunuchs fled after his execution to the Greek city of Samos with a large treasure, where he was promptly robbed by a prominent Samian. Herodotus somewhat tauntingly adds in his history that he knows who this Samian is, but he's not going to tell us, with the clear implication that he heard this story either from the robbed eunuch or from the Samian who profited so greatly off Satasbe's failure. Not long after Nico's expedition, we find another of these early adventurers, of whom we know little more than name and a fragmentary record. Euthymenes of Massalia was a navigator from the Phocaean colony of Massalia, now the modern city of Marseille. We don't know exactly when he lived, although he quite probably lived in the early 6th century BC. Euthymenes had apparently explored quite some distance down the West African coast, and although we know virtually nothing about Euthymenes' voyage, we do know that he discovered a large river with crocodiles and hippopotami which he believed to be an Atlantic outlet for the Nile, but which was in reality almost certainly the Senegal River. We find mention of Euthymenes both in Pseudo-Plutarch and Seneca the Younger. Euthymenes' voyage to the mouth of the Senegal marks the end of the Greek explorations beyond the Pillars of Hercules. This was the period of the rise of the Carthaginian Empire, and for the next few centuries any voyages down the coast of Africa would be conducted under their auspices. The most famous Carthaginian voyage of exploration was that of Ahano the Navigator, whose voyage is known to us in great detail by way of a remarkable Greek document dating from the 5th century BC, the Periplus of Hanno. A Periplus is an ancient Greek log of a voyage, noting travel times, ports, and physical landmarks along the way. We have many ancient Greek periply, but the Periplus of Hanno is unusual in that it is a translation of an earlier Carthaginian account of Hanno's voyage. Hanno was a member of the ruling dynasty of Carthage, and at some time, likely in the 5th century BC, he set out on a voyage of exploration. The Periplus we have today purports to describe his discoveries along the African coast. The document we have today is incomplete and very obviously riddled with errors, but it was based off a Punic summary of the voyage that was on display in the temple of Baal Hamon in Carthage, itself a summary of a longer account of the journey kept in the Carthaginian archives, which were later lost in the destruction of the city. We need to also keep in mind that the Carthaginians themselves likely falsified certain details of their voyages in order to throw off would-be imitators from replicating their feats and accessing their markets. The Periplus tells us how Hanno set out to round Africa with 60 vessels and 30,000 men, and describes the various landmarks and phenomena that he encountered as well as the colonies he founded along the coast of what is now Morocco, and on one mysterious island farther to the south. 
We can easily spend an entire hour-long episode talking about the various claims made in the Periplus and the clashing interpretations of modern scholars, but suffice it to say that there are some who believe Hanno traveled as far south as Cameroon or Gabon, others who place the expedition's farthest extent somewhere close to the Senegal or perhaps Sierra Leone, and others who believe that Hanno never got any further than southern Morocco. The whole discussion of what to make of the Paraplus lies beyond the scope of this episode, but suffice it to say here that I personally take the view that an expedition did in fact occur under Hanno, and while the number of men involved is certainly greatly exaggerated, the expedition did make significant headway down the African coast, possibly to Sierra Leone or somewhere in that region. The Carthaginians also established a settlement on an island known to the Greeks as Cernae. Although, as with everything else pertaining to Hanno's voyage, the location of this Cernae island is vigorously debated. It's extremely plausible that it was this island that the Carthaginians used as their forward base for their gold trade with sub-Saharan Africa. After the fall of the Carthaginian Empire, these settlements were abandoned or destroyed, but several more expeditions down the coast of Africa were undertaken during the Roman period. The historian Polybius was the first Roman explorer we know of to undertake the voyage, almost immediately after the fall of Carthage, very possibly uh, inspired by the Carthaginian accounts of their own explorations. Polybius succeeded in sailing past the Sahara Desert, possibly to the farthest reaches of Hanno's expedition. He certainly encountered the island of Cernae, but the Romans had little interest in following up on Polybius's expedition, and little attempt was subsequently made to expand Roman knowledge of the West African coast. Now that's not to say that others didn't travel out that way. Around the year 150 BC, Eudoxus of Cyzicus, a famed astronomer and navigator who had reportedly sailed twice from Arabia to India, attempted to circumnavigate Africa, but he apparently disappeared and was never heard of again. A little over a century later, King Juba II of Mauritania, a noted scholar and geographer in his own right, also led an expedition down the coast of Africa where, among other things, they explored the Canary Islands, which were subsequently described and named the Fortunate Isles in Pliny the Elder's Natural History. But in general, the Roman period was a fallow one when it came to exploring Western Africa, and the next 1,200 years saw virtually no European exploration to the south. There were a few Roman trade contacts with the Canaries, a bunch of isolated Muslim trips to the Canaries, but there too, not much happened in the way of exploration, colonization, or settlement. Recollection of the earlier Phoenician and Greek discoveries receded, and even the Canaries faded from the European consciousness, preserved only as dim memories emanating from Pliny and Ptolemy's accounts of the Fortunate Isles. Our story only picks up again in the late 13th century, when the maritime merchants of Genoa began to cast their eyes farther abroad for new markets and trade routes. 
The first recorded Atlantic voyage of exploration we have from the late medieval period is that of the Vivaldi brothers in 1291. This very first voyage was actually undertaken for the most ambitious goal of all, to open a direct trading route with India. This is of course uncharacteristic for these early expeditions, which were usually undertaken in the pursuit of more modest goals. In any event, what little we know about the Vivaldi expedition comes primarily from a brief note written by one Jacopo Doria. Jacopo was the author of a brief historical work covering the years 1280 through 1293, which he apparently wrote for the purpose of presenting to the city of Genoa. In his entry for the year 1291, Jacopo writes as follows. Tedicio Doria, Ugolino Vivaldi, and a brother of the latter, together with a few other citizens of Genoa, initiated an expedition which no one up to that time had ever attempted. They fitted out two galleys in splendid fashion. Having stocked them with provision, water, and other necessities, they sent them on their way in the month of May towards the Strait of Ceuta in order that the galleys might sail through the ocean sea to India and return with useful merchandise. The two above-mentioned brothers went on the vessels in person, and also two Franciscan friars, all of which truly astonished those who witnessed them as well as those who heard of them. After the travelers passed a place called Gazora, there was no further news of them. May God watch over them and bring them back safely. End quote. We have a scattering of other Genoese documents that tell us a few additional minor details of the expedition. Namely, that the second Vivaldi brother's name was Vandino, and that the expedition stopped at Majorca before heading out to the Atlantic. Ultimately, though, the one thing that matters is that Ugolino and Vendino Vivaldi were never seen again. Gazora, the final place at which the Vivaldi brothers were reportedly sighted, is generally identified with Cape Nun, along the coast of southern Morocco. There are two interesting postscripts to the ill-fated voyage of the Vivaldi brothers. The first comes from a book we've mentioned earlier, The Book of Knowledge of All the Kingdoms of the World. This book was, as we've mentioned last episode, a Castilian book written in the form of a fictitious travelogue. The author describes his voyages all around the world to both real and fantastical realms. As he describes Christian Nubia and Ethiopia, he mentions how one of the two Genoese galleys was wrecked off the West African coast, and its crew survived and dwelt safely in the realm of Prester John. He also tells of a later voyage by Ugolino Vivaldi's son, Sor Leon da Vivaldi, who reportedly went in search of his father and reached as far as the kingdom of Magdasar which some scholars have attempted to identify with Mogadishu. Of course, the entire book is filled with fantastical details, so we don't know how much, if any, of these accounts are actually factual. The other postscript comes a century and a half after the Vivaldi brothers' ill-fated voyage. In the 1450s, a Genoese explorer in the service of Portugal by the name of Antonioto Usodimare 
wrote a letter to his creditors describing a voyage he took up the Gambia River. The letter, unsurprisingly when we consider that Usodumari was trying to impress his creditors, gave an exaggerated account of Usodumari's discoveries. We're going to talk more about Usodumari's letter in our next uh, episode when we discuss Henry the Navigator and his expeditions. But the important thing for now is that Usodimari claimed to have made contact with a descendant of one of the sailors who accompanied Vivaldi, who informed him that a number of the crew members had been shipwrecked and taken captive by the locals. Of course, Usodimari weakens his own credibility by asserting that he was told that he was just a short distance from the realm of Prester John, so it's up to the researcher to determine just how much of these accounts to believe. Returning to our narrative, we now enter a period of significant European exploration off the coast of Africa. I'm going to preface this segment of the episode with the cautionary note that we have a very incomplete and confusing record of these 14th century voyages. Many of the documents and accounts pertaining to these early voyages of exploration are suspected to be later forgeries. Of those which aren't forgeries, many are incomplete and missing important details. And finally, there were also any number of voyages which did occur during this time period and which we have no knowledge of. So keep that in mind for the rest of this episode. I'm going to go through some of the best documented expeditions, but just remember that a, oftentimes there is scholarship out there disputing the date or the details or the context of any one of these expeditions, and B, this is an incomplete list of such voyages. The footnotes on this episode's transcript on historycourses.com will have more details and sources regarding these uncertainties. In 1312, just over 20 years after the Vivaldi brothers' expedition, Another adventurer by the name of Lancelotto Malocello set out, likely in search of the Vivaldi brothers. He didn't discover any trace of the explorers, but he did discover, or rather I should say rediscover, the Canarian island of Lanzarote, which was subsequently named after him. It's quite unclear how the Genoese followed up on Malocello's voyage, but they certainly followed up in some manner. We know this because on the Angelino Dulcert map of 1339, we find the newly discovered island of Lanzarote depicted with the Genoese flag. We know next to nothing about the Genoese presence on Lanzarote, or indeed how extensive it actually was, but it was quite short-lived. Genoa found itself distracted by wars with the Byzantines and Venetians, and it was unable to expend its limited resources on the far-flung Canaries. By 1341, Genoese expeditions to the islands were largely supplanted by those of bigger and wealthier kingdoms to their west, Portugal, Castile, and Aragon, who began to take an interest themselves in these newly discovered islands. The first of these kingdoms to do so was Portugal, which had begun to build up its maritime capabilities in the early 14th century. One of the more significant components of this Portuguese pivot towards maritime power was the creation of a Portuguese navy and the appointment of Manuel Pisana, 
a Genoese mariner, as admiral of this new navy. The Genoese had extensive experience navigating the seas around the rim of Africa, and the importation of Genoese sailors to lead the Portuguese navy was a significant step towards Portugal becoming a naval power in its own right. In 1341, the Portuguese king, Afonso IV, funded an expedition to explore the Canaries. As with all the other voyages, we lack a lot of the context, such as whether the king of Portugal was the sole initiator of this voyage or whether he merely funded it in conjunction with other parties. But even so, we have a wonderful documentary source for this expedition in the form of a letter written by Giovanni Boccaccio, the famed Renaissance humanist. In the letter, Boccaccio recounts at length information about this voyage sent to him from his correspondence, two Florentine merchants in Seville. Without getting too bogged down by the details, the account describes how the expedition, comprised of a mixed company of Italian, Castilian, and Portuguese sailors, mapped out 13 islands in the region and brought back samples of flora and fauna from the islands as well as four natives which they captured and brought back to Portugal. Now, what happened next after this expedition of 1341 is not exactly clear, but what follows is the best reconstruction I can manage. The central figure here is Luis de la Cerda, French ambassador to the Holy See in Avignon. Luis de la Cerda was the son of Prince Alfonso the Disinherited of Castile, who, as his moniker suggests, was a claimant to the throne of Castilion who was defeated and driven into exile. Luis, Alfonso's son, was born in France and served King Philip VI of France, who was his cousin. He was granted the title of Count of Clermont, and as his estates closely bordered the English holdings in Gascony, he served in the French army during the early phases of the Hundred Years' War. Luis de la Cerda seems to have excelled in naval affairs, and in 1340 he was appointed Admiral of France. He resigned that position shortly thereafter and joined the main body of the French army during the War of the Breton Succession, which was of course a proxy war uh, as part of the Hundred Years' War. The War of the Breton Succession was a particularly savage theater of the Hundred Years' War, but Luis de la Cerda succeeded in making a name for himself as a harsh man even in that context. On one occasion, he shocked King Philip and the French lords by demanding two English knights to behead before the walls of Hennebon, in response to the defenders' taunts regarding an earlier defeat in which Luis's nephew was killed. Luis got his knights after he threatened to leave the French army if his demand was refused, and it was only a daring English raid that succeeded in rescuing the two knights from a public beheading. In any event, in the year 1344, Luis de la Cerda found himself at the court of Pope Clement VI in Avignon, on an embassy from King Philip of France. While in Avignon, he apparently seized the opportunity to make a proposal to the Pope, in which he promised to convert the Canarian natives and pay the Pope an annual tribute of 400 florins in exchange for sole dominion over the islands. 
The Pope agreed, and a ceremony was held in which Luis de la Cerda received a crown and a scepter from the Pope's own hand, and a series of papal bulls were sent out to all the kingdoms of Western Europe, first informing them that Luis had been granted dominion over the Canaries, and then requesting that they give him aid in his upcoming crusade to bring the Christian faith to the Fortunate Isles. Both Portugal and Castile protested, the former on account of their recent voyage of discovery, and the latter based on the doctrine that they, as successors to the ancient Visigothic Kingdom of Hispania, held sole rights to the North African coastline. But protests aside, both Portugal and Castile begrudgingly accepted Luis de la Cerda's title. One observer, who later recalled the pomp and ceremony with which Luis de la Cerda was invested with the temporal dominion over the Fortunate Isles, was none other than the famed Italian humanist Petrarch, who later wrote about it in his De Vida Solitaria. Petrarch wrote, Recently, Clement VI gave a prince to that country, that country, of course, is referring to the Canaries, a man of noble stock mixed of the royal blood of Spain and France, whom I once saw. You remember how, on the day when he went out to display himself in the city with crown and scepter, a great rain suddenly poured out of the sky, and he returned home so completely drenched that it was interpreted as an omen that the sovereignty of a truly rainy and watery country had been imposed upon him. How he succeeded in that dominion situated outside of the world I have not learned, but I do know that many things are written and reported in view of which its fortune does not appear fully to square with the designation of the fortunate islands. End quote. As it turned out, Petrarch was writer than he knew at the time, and the fortunate isles brought little good fortune to Luis de la Cerda. Lack of enthusiasm among the Iberian kingdoms delayed Luis's departure until the fighting between England and France broke out again in 1346. Luis returned to the French armies, endured the catastrophic defeat at Crecy in 1347, and died in the summer of 1348, presumably of the Black Death. Though his heirs tried to pretend otherwise, with Luis de la Cerda's death his title died as well and the Canary Islands were once more up for grabs. The mantle of Atlantic exploration was now taken up by the Catalans, specifically the merchants and missionaries living in Majorca. The island of Majorca, then under the dominion of the kings of Aragon, was home to a thriving mercantile scene as well as to a school of mostly Jewish cartographers. These merchants and cartographers took a great interest in the Canaries and the fringes of the known world. And you'll recall, they'd been involved with African exploration for quite some time. The Vivaldi brothers, for example, we mentioned earlier how they stopped in Majorca on their way down the African coast. So, the community of Majorca was involved with these Genoese explorations for quite some time, while well, now they moved to the forefront of these explorations, and took a leading role themselves. Majorcan voyages to the Canaries began immediately after the return of the Portuguese expedition of 1341. In the year 1342, at least six voyages were licensed from Majorca to the Canaries, 
although we know next to nothing about them save for the names of the licensees. And while we lack documentation for the next few years, it's likely that this frenetic tempo kept up for at least a few years before subsiding. Eventually, though, the pace did slow down, although the Majorcans did continue to send expeditions at fairly regular intervals. Once again, there are many expeditions which we simply have no record of, and on the flip side, there are many accounts of voyages to the Canaries which are at present considered apocryphal. But we do have solid evidence for multiple Catalan expeditions down the coast of Africa over the next 40 years. In 1346, a Catalan adventurer by the name of Jean Ferrer set out from Mallorca to find the fabled River of Gold. A picture of his ship, accompanied by a short statement that he had undertaken a voyage to discover the River of Gold, appears in Abraham Crescas's Catalan Atlas of 1375. But other than that, Ferrer left no trace behind him, and presumably was never seen again. In 1351, following the death of Luis de la Cerda and the upheaval of the Black Death, the Pope turned to the Majorcans to bring Christianity to the Canaries. The Pope issued a bull authorizing a mission of Catalan friars to the islands. These friars were to be accompanied by a dozen Catalan-speaking Canary Islanders to serve as interpreters. That such natives could in fact be found is evidence of the slave raiding that was going on in the Canaries, even if we don't have records of these particular raids. At the same time, the Pope also created a new diocese, the Diocese of Fortuna, and appointed a bishop to minister to the diocese. At least five proselytizing expeditions were arranged between 1351 and 1386, and it seems like the missionaries had at least some success until 1391, when the Guanches, or the Canarian natives, apparently rose up and slaughtered 13 of these Catalan missionaries. For at least part of this time, the Aragonese maintained that they held sole temporal authority over the Canaries as well, as we have a document from 1366 in which the king of Aragon orders a captain of his to patrol the seas around the Canaries to keep foreigners out. This, of course, is not to say that those foreigners actually stayed out. As a matter of fact, we have concrete evidence that they very much did not stay out. We have three documents from Portugal dating from 1370 through 1386. In the first document, King Ferdinand I of Portugal grants overlordship of the two Canarian islands of Lanzarote and La Gomera to one Lanzarote di Francia. The next document, dated to 1376, tells us how this Lanzarote di Francia attempted to make good on his title and records how he fought with both Guanches, the native Canarians, and Castilians. So in addition to whatever Aragonese claims were going on, you had Castilians and Portuguese fighting each other on these islands. So we see from this document that both the Portuguese and Castilians were very much involved with the Canaries during these years. And then finally we have a document from 1386 in which the King of Portugal notes that this Lanzarote de Francia had died and his titles were inherited by his son. 
although we don't have any further record of this son actually doing anything related to the Canaries. The role played by the Castilians in the conquest of the Canaries begins to grow dramatically from this point in time. In 1390, several Castilian nobles and merchants based in Seville petitioned King Henry III of Castile for permission to conquer the Canaries. Permission was apparently granted, and in 1393 a small fleet of five vessels set out for the Canaries, where they raided the island of Lanzarote and carried off 130 slaves, including a chieftain and his wife, as well as large quantities of expensive dyes, woods, and skins, which they sold for a healthy profit. From this point on, the civilian merchants were to play a critical role in financing and organizing Castilian overseas expansion, first into the Canaries, and subsequently to the New World. News of the great success of this civilian venture soon spread, and among those in the know was one Robert de Bracamont, the French ambassador to Castile. Bracamont had a cousin from Normandy, a young and ambitious adventurer by the name of Jean de Betancourt, and likely by way of Bracamont, Betancourt became acquainted with the great financial opportunity to be had on the Canaries. Betancourt was enamored by the reports he had heard from the Canaries, and along with an old comrade in arms, with whom he had served in North Africa several years earlier, Gadifer de La Salle, the pair of adventurers decided to make their fortunes and conquer the Canaries as a private fiefdom. Betancourt sold his house and borrowed deeply from his cousin Robert de Bracamont, while La Salle put up his own ship and most of his own assets to help finance the venture. The expedition set out from La Rochelle on the 1st of May 1402, with Betancourt and La Salle commanding 280 men, almost all Norman and Gascon adventurers. Also accompanying the expedition were two Franciscan monks, named Pierre Bontier and Jean Liverier, who are important because they later recorded the events of the expedition in Le Canarion which is our primary source for the first few years of the conquest of the Canaries. Initially, the expedition bore a marked French character, and all indications point to Betancourt and La Salle's early intentions to govern the islands as a fiefdom of the King of France. This may in part explain the unpleasant reception the expedition received when they stopped in Castile on their way to the Canaries, Gadifer de la Salle was arrested on accusations of piracy and only released after interrogation by the Royal Council of Seville, and a series of dissensions thinned their ranks from the original 280 to a mere 63. But the adventurers persisted nonetheless, and arrived shortly thereafter at the island of Lanzarote. They didn't have the forces necessary to reduce the island militarily, but they reached an accord with the chief of the island, by which they pledged friendship with each other, and the adventurers pledged to defend them against the Castilian slavers who had been harrying the island. From their fortified base on the southern tip of the island, Petincourt and La Salle decided to move against the nearby island of Fuerteventura, 
but were forced to return to Lanzarote shortly after arriving in Fuerteventura, on account of a lack of men and provisions. Betancourt himself returned to Castile to recruit more men and obtain supplies, while Garifer de la Salle remained behind to command the remaining men. It was at this point that the partnership between Betancourt and La Salle began to fall apart. While Betancourt was in Europe seeking men and supplies, La Salle was struck by a heavy blow that nearly undid the entire expedition and came very close to ending his life. One of the adventurers who had accompanied the party was a man by the name of Berton de Berneval. Berton was, by all accounts, a very talented member of the expedition and both Betancourt and La Salle trusted him sufficiently to leave him in temporary command of the base on Lanzarote when they crossed over into Fuerteventura. But this Berton had treachery in his heart, and no sooner had Betancourt departed for Europe than Berton mutinied against La Salle. He took over the fort and all the provisions, and what was more, he left La Salle and a small party of his supporters marooned on a small island without food or water. La Salle survived on the island for eight days before he was rescued by a friendly member of the expedition, living off the dew he was able to squeeze out of a linen cloth. Berton, meanwhile, had little interest in remaining on Lanzarote for a long time, and was determined to make his fortune quickly. To that end, he deceived the chief of Lanzarote and, under the guise of protecting the natives from marauding Spanish slavers, he kidnapped the chief along with 22 other natives. Although the chief managed to escape, the others weren't so fortunate, and Berton soon sailed from the island with his cargo of slaves and trade goods. And not only did Berton betray the Canarians, but he also betrayed his supporters, as when he sailed away from Lanzarote, he left many of them behind to shift for themselves. These unfortunate confederates of Breton, realizing that they were now at the mercy of the betrayed Gadifer de la Salle and his loyalists, tried to sail for the African mainland, but ten of them were drowned and the remainder enslaved by the Moors. This result was devastating for Gadifer de la Salle. His ship had been stolen, he had almost been killed, and during Breton's mutiny he had lost all control over his men. But even more devastatingly, he and his men had lost the trust of the natives and soon war broke out between the adventurers and the Guanches. It was at this precarious point that Betancourt's ship finally returned with the reinforcements and supplies, but rather than this being an occasion for La Salle's relief, it turned into one of fury and disappointment. You see, Betancourt had betrayed La Salle. While in Spain, Betancourt had met with King Henry III of Castile and swore homage to him as Lord of the Canaries. As you'll recall, the initial agreement between Betancourt and La Salle was that the two of them would take the lands in the service of the King of France, but more importantly, together. But now Betancourt had gone and sworn fealty to the King of Castile with nary a word for the unfortunate La Salle, who was suffering and struggling back in the Canaries. And indeed, Henry III recognized Betancourt as a vassal and as the sole lord of the Canaries, 
even promising him a fifth of all profits coming from trade with the islands. Betancourt had just consolidated his own position and wealth, but La Salle was left out in the cold. Betancourt himself returned to the Canaries shortly after the reinforcements he had sent, and with Betancourt once again present, peace was restored to the island. The chief of Lanzarote submitted himself to Betancourt and agreed to be baptized, after which all of his people followed suit. Betancourt now turned his eyes towards Fuerteventura, the island immediately to his south, and he and La Salle each crossed over separately and began the conquest of the island. But La Salle was displeased with the manner in which Betancourt had marginalized him, and after unsuccessfully requesting that Betancourt grant him overlordship over three of the yet unconquered islands, La Salle left for Castile in frustration, hoping to plead his case before the king. Betancourt returned himself to argue his side of the case, and the unconnected La Salle was unable to contend against Betancourt and his prominent backers, and his case was decisively rejected by the king of Castile. Following this defeat, the unfortunate Gadifer de La Salle returned to France to live out the remainder of his days in obscure mediocrity, having lost most of his possessions in his failed gambit for greatness. With La Salle out of the way, Betancourt returned to the Canaries and resumed the conquest of Fuerteventura. The French and Castilians made heavy use of bows and arrows against the Guanches, who had nothing with which to respond against the ranged weapons of the French and Castilian invaders. By the beginning of 1405, the two chiefs of Fuerteventura were compelled to submit to Betancourt, and like the chief of Lanzarote in the previous year, they converted to Christianity along with all their people. From Fuerteventura, Betancourt turned his attention to Gran Canaria, the densely populated island to the west of Lanzarote and Fuerteventura. His attack, however, was bloodily repulsed by the natives, with the loss of 22 Frenchmen who had been from the original adventurers who accompanied Betancourt, including Gadifer de La Salle's bastard son, Hannibal. In the wake of this defeat, Betancourt withdrew from Gran Canaria and sailed to the island of La Palma also heavily populated. Here, too, stiff native resistance compelled Betancourt to withdraw after having suffered casualties. Having been twice defeated by the natives of the populous islands in the Canaries, Betancourt was forced to content himself with one final prize, the tiny island of El Hierro, the smallest and most distant of all the Canary Islands. El Hierro fell without a fight, and the small native population was entirely rounded up and sold into slavery, their island settled by 160 Norman settlers recruited by Betancourt's nephew, Massio de Betancourt. The conquest of El Hierro marks the end of the so-called Conquista Betancuriana, and from this point on, Betancourt made no more conquests in the Canaries, instead focusing on colonizing the islands he had already conquered and maximizing their profitability. Although the conquest of the Canaries wouldn't be completed for nearly a century, 
Betancourt's conquest of Lanzarote, Fuerteventura, and El Hierro in the name of the King of Castile was a seminal event in world history. Betancourt had, for the first time, brought the Canaries firmly within Europe's sphere of interest. And moreover, he had placed Castile in a position to be able to participate in the emerging Atlantic world, and eventually to apply the lessons learned in the Canaries to the New World. Although Betancourt had failed to take the most populated islands in the archipelago, he nonetheless cemented in the Castilian claim to the islands, and for the very first time applied the model of European colonization that was to be repeated time and again in the centuries to come. For his part, Betancourt remained on the Canaries until 1412, when he returned home to France, never to return to the Canaries again. When he left the Canaries, Jean de Betancourt entrusted the islands to his nephew, Messieu de Betancourt, of whom we shall have a lot more to say in the future. But we leave the Castilian Canaries for now, because as seminal as this first successful European colonization was, it was to be Portugal, not Castile, that dominated the colonial scene of the 15th century. In the next episode, we will turn to Portugal and her role in the Age of Discovery. Thank you.